Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. Let us hear our scripture lesson from the book of Isaiah. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Almighty and gracious God, we gather this morning at the beginning of our Advent journey. And as we hear your word read and proclaimed, Speak to us. Speak to us in such a way that our lives would be transformed and we would leave this place not just as hearers of your word, but as doers of your word. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. So they've been expecting their first child and when delivery day came, surprise, it was twins. Twin boys to be exact, and immediately they realized that any parenting advice they had gotten was tossed out the window. Parents of multiples know this. The rest of us just marvel at them. But they had known this, and they raised these two boys, and as they grew, the mother and father realized that one of the children was a pessimist. I don't mean just any pessimist, like a pessimist to the nth degree. The other was an optimist. Not just any optimist, an optimist to the nth degree. And so you've got mom and dad in the middle holding on their own, and you've got Eeyore over here and the overeager Labrador over here. I mean, that's who they were. But as the boys got older, they started thinking about how life would challenge them as a pessimist and as an optimist. They got thinking about junior high and high school and into adulthood. And so they went to their doctor and they said, Doc, we've got this problem with the boys. One is extremely pessimistic. The other is extremely optimistic. What can we do? You know that life is going to beat them down. What can we do? And the doctor thought for a moment. And he says, this is a radical treatment. I wouldn't suggest this for just any parent. But you all are in a unique situation on several levels. 
But Christmas is coming, and so what I want you to do this year is you're probably like every parent, and you want to give gifts equally and fairly to your children because you love them equally, but it's because you love them this will work. The parents were a little leery, and he said, so to the pessimists, I want you to give them the best thing you could ever give them. Give them a brand new bike, and not just any bike, give them one of all the bells and whistles. Sort of like the Ferrari of bicycles. Now to the one that's optimistic, this is going to be a challenge for you. I want you to give them five pounds of manure. Now the parents had that look. They're like, are you kidding me? And the doctor said, if you want to break them and help them see that the world is not all bad and that the world sometimes is disappointing, you've got to show them the extremes. Parents sort of shook their head and said, well, it's for the kids. It's for their own good. We'll do it. So Christmas morning comes, and under the tree from mom and dad are two beautifully wrapped packages. And immediately the pessimist, he opens his package up, and it's a bike. Like no bike. I mean, it's better than the Lamborghini. It's the McLaren of bikes. I mean, it's shiny. It's got 21 shiny gears, fat knobby tires. There's not a place this bike can't go if you're willing to pedal it. And he looks at the bike and he says, oh, great. I'll probably fall off this thing, break my leg, never walk again, and drag my foot around like a cripple the rest of my life. Parents are like, it failed. Meanwhile, over here, the optimist, he's unwrapping the box, it's beautifully wrapped, he's tearing it apart, and he gets to it and he sees that box full of manure and he goes, his eyes get big. He gets excited and he goes, you can't fool me. If there's this much manure, there's a pony around here somewhere. <laughs> I love an optimist. I am one, I admit it. I love a good optimist because they see hope always in the world. They always see hope. Isaiah is writing to the Israelites. He realizes that it's been a tough time and that they need encouragement. They feel like God has abandoned them and so it's a message of hope to the world that he is writing. He says that even as things look bleak, God's got great plans for you. He talks about this idea that there's going to be this new kingdom that it will be high on the mountain. Now, he's not necessarily talking about a physical place as much as he's talking about proximity to God. Because if you think about it, if you're high upon the mountain, you can see out across the land and you can see what God sees. If you're high upon the mountain, you are closer to God than you are if you're down in the valley. And so this idea that this new land will be high upon the mountain means that people will be closer to God so they can hear more clearly what God said to them. That God would be close enough to settle disputes bring peace to them, that they would walk in the light of God their whole lives. It was a message of hope for all the world about the kingdom that God wants here on earth and for us to live in. You see, hope is a desire for something and expecting that it will be realized, expecting that it can come true. Theologically, when we think about hope, we're talking about this idea of happiness with God, of a close relationship, and the realization that God's kingdom is near for you and for me. 
That's what the season of Advent is all about. It's about the coming of Christ into the world and how it brought hope to the Israelites, how it brings hope to us even today. I mean, as we lit this first candle this morning, it burns bright to remind us that hope exists. That hope is in this place. Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of South Africa, he wrote these words. He said, hope is being about, being able to see that there is light even in the darkness. Hope is being able to see that there is light in the darkness. I mean, this contrast between dark and light, we really get it, but we don't really fully understand the coming of Christ and the hope that it brings to the world until we sit in this place, in this sanctuary at a time like Tenebrae. You know, Tenebrae, the music is building towards that seventh word where Jesus says, it is finished and he dies on the cross. And the music builds this cascade, sort of a storm, if you will, and it swirls around and then it just stops. And the candle goes out. Now the script is very clear. One minute of absolute darkness. One minute of absolute silence. Not 45 seconds, not 30 seconds, one minute. And that's because in the first 30 seconds, you know why it's dark. You're still marveling about the music, still getting used to the darkness, but when you hit 31 seconds, it's now uncomfortably long. By 45 seconds, you're starting to ask, when will it end? At one minute, your soul about screams out and wants to yell, enough, turn on the lights. It's not all bleak. And in that moment, just before our souls want to scream out like that, the light begins to come down the center aisle from the narthex. It's amazing what one candle can do to change a room. What the light of Christ can do to change the world. You see, we anchor our lives on the hope that Christ comes and chases the darkness out for you and for me so that all the world might have that hope. And once we begin to understand that that light, that Christ is the hope, we begin to realize that if we anchor our life in Christ, that we begin to understand the hope that God has for the world and that we have abundant life the way Christ wants us to have it. We begin to hear Christ speaking to us saying, you are enough, just like you are. You're just enough. You matter. I've given you a special set of skills for the goodness of my kingdom. You anchoring your life in me, we make a good team. You're just what I'm looking for. I mean, think about Peter. When he called Peter, Peter was a fisherman, and Peter had this wonderful habit of having no filter, just blurted out what came to mind. Is that really what you want to be one of your key spokespeople? Someone that has no filter, but apparently that's just what Jesus was looking for. Then there was Zacchaeus, who nobody seemed to see, even when he was high up in a tree, but Jesus saw him. 
The woman at the well who thought her life was worthless, everyone sort of shunned, Jesus brought her in. The children, even when they were too young to deal with adult stuff, Jesus said, oh, no, no, let them come to me. Because you've got to have faith like a child to truly understand what I'm teaching. You see, in that minute, we begin to realize that Jesus sees all of us just as we are. And we anchor our lives in faith. We anchor our lives in the hope and relationship of God. We begin to understand what is possible in our world. It'd be curious to see in 30 years how the history books paint the life of Jimmy Carter. I mean, farmer, naval officer, politician, humanitarian, a man of deep and abiding faith. In his book, Faith, he writes, Jesus has been a constant companion, and it's through that relationship with him that I am known, understood, and loved. I mean, think about it. He's smart enough to figure out that through the relationship with Christ that he is known, understood, and loved, and that that's what compels his whole life. That's what compels him still to teach Sunday school at age 95, even with a broken hip. Or to serve and build homes for Habitat, even after he fell on the stairs and busted his head, still out swinging a hammer, driving nails. To advocate for healing the racial divide in our country, to talk about peace in the world and addressing the environmental issues which plague creation. Through ups and downs in his life, Jimmy Carter draws that life in Christ means hope for change in his life, hope for change for the world, hope for change for righteous living. It's what keeps him pressing on because he believes if he's still here, there's work to be done. That he has hope for the world because of his relationship with Christ. But see, once we begin to realize that in our own lives and anchor them in faith, anchor them in that hope that Christ has come for us and that Christ calls us, when we come together in this place, we begin to realize that this idea of hope gets built upon by our community. See, we realize that the church is God's greatest hope for the world, and it's his greatest hope both inward and outward. I have a colleague that so irreverently refers to the ministry of the church as Hatchem, Patchem, Matchem, and Dispatchem. I mean, you think about it, he might be right. I mean, we help folks raise their children. When life gets rough, we carry them over the rough places. When they fall in love, we help strengthen their marriages and help them live together as couples. And then as life fades, we help them be prepared and ultimately join the church triumphant. But see, I like to think about it, this idea of the ministry of the church. It's in this place that we begin to build an inward hope upon ourselves through baptism and confirmation. We help folks understand that they are part of God's family to claim it for themselves and in claiming it for themselves to go deeper in their faith even beyond confirmation through small groups and Bible studies, through Sunday school, and other faith formation retreats and opportunities. But see, that inward hope helps us understand God's call and builds that relationship upon our lives, but it's the outward hope that we project. 
when we are no longer just hearers of God's word, but we're doers of God's word. When the ministries of this church go outside the walls to bring that message of hope for the world. I think about the work our missions committee does in partnership with the Forsyth Jail and Prison Ministry. We give money to help support their transition to work program. We're providing hope to young men who have been incarcerated to help them realize that they can make life on the outside successful once again. That they don't have to return to a life of crime and being locked up, but that they can thrive. Or that through disaster response, if someone is walking side by side with those whose lives have collapsed, whose homes have been destroyed, and that we will help rebuild their community. We offer hope through the Shalom Project with those that are trying to get by, the working poor, if you will, how to make ends meet when there's medical needs and there's not enough jingle in the jar. We've helped make it possible for them to see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. To sit with and to care for folks. To carry the messages that we hear, that relationship with God outside the walls of this place so that others may understand what the light and the darkness means for their lives as well. You see, we are that place, we become that place of hope that carries the message of hope out into the world. So it's December 1, the first day of Advent, and I don't know about you, where you are on your Advent journey, what you're thinking about. Maybe your house is already fully decorated and most of your shopping is done, and maybe you're sitting there going, I haven't even put the turkey away yet. We've got a few more leftovers. Maybe you're trying to figure out your Advent journey, or maybe you're just trying to figure out life. That you're trying to figure out, surely there's more to life than nine to five, the daily grind, rinse and repeat over and over again. Maybe you're trying to figure out Advent, that there's more to it than spending and shopping and strudel and stress. Or maybe, just maybe, you're looking for the pony. Because you know it's right around the corner somewhere because you have hope. You have hope in your heart that Advent has come for you, that Christ has come into your life and said, you're good enough. You matter. This is the place for you. Well, no matter where we are on that journey, this is the place for us. This is a place for hope. This is a home for hope. Welcome home. Welcome home to this idea of hope where we can be the hope for the world. Hope for you and me. Hope that we can walk in the light of God all the days of our life. That we can find that in this place. But that we carry it out into the world to invite others to be a part of it. A home for hope right here in our midst because hope is in this place. Hope is with each other. Hope is in worship. Hope is at the table. Hope burns brightly before our eyes. Amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you'll consider joining us for worship on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock or Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, or 11. Have a blessed day.